day, opening day. The visitors take the diamond in the traveling gray. Opening day, opening day. Single up the middle and you're batting a thousand array. Hello and welcome to episode 1519 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hey, Ben. Happy what would have been opening day. Or not that happy, unhappy what would have been opening day. But there is going to be a lot of baseball on TV and on various other platforms. I don't know whether you have looked at the list of games that are going to be re-aired. So MLB Network is doing a marathon of memorable opening day games, five different games that will be airing throughout the day. And then various other outlets, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, other places, there will be games on every team will have a game that their fans can watch somewhere or other at some point during the day. I'll link to the schedule for those who haven't seen it. And it's a lot of memorable games and famous games, and a lot of them are identified by the milestone, the thing that happened in that game, the Felix perfect game, let's say, or sometimes it's just a a playoff game. This is ALCS Game 7 or whatever, or it's the Verlander no-hitter or something. So I saw that Craig Calcaterra was saying that he would rather not know what the game was and just turn on whatever the channel is and see the game and not know that it was going to be a win and not know that it was this memorable game that you are tuning in explicitly to see. And I wondered whether you would agree with that or whether that would even be a common opinion, because I would think most people probably like the idea of watching because they know that it is a certain famous game. But on the other hand, they know exactly what happens and how it ends, and maybe they don't remember all the details, but close enough. And I do kind of like the idea of just getting a random game. Downside is you might not know that it's a good game. But if, if you told me it's a good game, but I'm not telling you which one, and I'm not telling you who wins... That is pretty appealing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I would just say that everybody's going to have a very different uh, experience with this. I think everyone temperamentally is going to have different tastes in this sort of uh, rewatch. And I'm, I've been polluted by years of having to draw content out of baseball. I've watched, <laughs> I've probably watched as much baseball that was rewatch or that was not live as I have watched live baseball over the last couple of years because. Uh, You spend a lot of time uh, watching games that you are writing about that have already happened or watching various uh, aspects of a player's play that it might come from a game two years earlier. And so I would want probably to watch games that I knew why I was watching it so that I would know what to be looking for. But that's a very specific (laughs) set of needs that most people don't encounter. I think in theory, I definitely would back Craig's position and i've had the same thought that uh finding games that people don't know the outcome of is better now the nice thing is that the world is really limitless in that respect i mean i couldn't tell you who won most games in the 2018 world series (laughs) well i guess i could because it was a five game series so i can (laughs) tell you who won 80 percent of them but you know for the most part like i don't really i don't think that uh, i would quickly identify who won most of this year's NLCS and ALCS games, for instance, besides knowing who won the series. Ultimately, at some point in 
the last couple of weeks, you made a reference to the sixth game of the World Series, and I could not for the life of me remember which one that was this year. So I think you I think you have as long as it's not a perfect game, you have almost all of baseball history to work with. There are very few games that aren't either perfect games or decisive games in series that I think most people know right away what they were. Now, you might figure it out as you go. So that was me saying that I think it's Craig. However, temperamentally, I will tell you this, that none of it is exactly going to fool me. Even Mm -hmm. if I'm watching a game that is just taped, if I recorded it, if I TiVo'd it, or if I'm watching it the next morning on MLB TV and I saved it and I kept myself from getting spoiled and I watch it later, I still can't feel the same suspense of knowing that it's live. Yeah. So in this long answer is that I think that if your goal is suspense, Craig is right, but your ceiling on suspense Mm -hmm. is low enough on an old game that it's probably better to have a game where uh, you, in a sense, know that you're, you know which plot points you're looking for, which narrative beats you're looking for. There's so, there's a lot of, um, there's research out there that shows that people really like watching reruns. That, in fact, people in a lot of cases enjoy reruns more than, than seeing the show the first time if it's something like, you know, Friends or Law and Order, because there's something very comforting about seeing the rhythm of plot points that you are expecting. And so if you are, Allowing that you're watching a game that is far, far, far removed from any real world stakes anymore. Yeah, I, you might as well watch something. I, I think I've answered both ways. <laughs> yeah, good job. So, really so I have answered. Okay, so if, yeah, just it just depends. If you think you're if you're looking for suspense, then I think obviously Craig is correct. Uh, but I would say that uh, you should prepare to be disappointed by how little suspense you feel, and right. therefore maybe seek out the game that is known that is well known for probably a very good reason yeah i don't know that a perfect game would really do it for me a lot of these are perfect games no hitters (laughs) there are multiple verlander no hitters here there's the burly perfect game there's felix and that's just the ultimate example of just well there's no losing something yeah there's not there's not even a batter by batter suspense because you already know how every at bat is going to end and if you just want to see the plays that are made, then you could watch a condensed game. Mm-hmm. If you're really a student of pitching and you want to just watch, you know, Burley break down every batter, then it depends how close you're going to watch it, I guess, is part of it. I watched, I rewatched a game today. It was the first baseball that I had watched since the season was suspended. And I enjoyed it. Uh, I watched the game one of the NLDS from 2010, uh, which I've, uh, which I cited in an email yesterday to somebody as my favorite or my most memorable game of of recent history, and it was good. I enjoyed it. That was mm-hmm. the game that, if anybody wants spoilers, that was the game that Tim Lincecum struck out fourteen and had something like thirty swinging strikes and threw a complete game and won one to nothing. Hmm. Yeah, I think I might enjoy a really dominant performance, yeah. even more so than a no-hitter or perfect game, which often are dominant performances, but not always. And when you don't have that suspense of, is he going to do it? Is he going to do this thing? Then maybe you can just enjoy how good this player is. And wow, he's getting lots of strikeouts. That's fun to watch. And I don't know. I haven't rewatched any full games, so clearly it's not something that has that much of an appeal for me, at least now. Maybe 
a few more weeks, a couple more months. We'll see if I start feeling the pull. But we talked last week about rereading things and re-experiencing things, and I tend not to do that much of that. I don't do that much rereading or rewatching or replaying because there are just always so many new things that I have my eye drawn toward. There are certain things I love and go back to again and again, like, I don't know, Seinfeld or Star Wars or Freaks and Geeks or something. I'll rewatch those. But a sporting event just isn't really the same for me, I don't think. But I do think I'm more attracted to the older games. The older it is, the more I want to watch it. Just kind of looking at this list, like hearing that they're going to be re-airing the A's 20th straight win in 2002. That's something that I could see myself watching more so than most of the things on this list, just because I haven't seen those players in a long time. I haven't seen a 2002 baseball broadcast since 2002. And unlike a lot of these other games, which I could just watch anytime, like, you know, all the games since 2009 are on YouTube if they aren't on MLB TV. And so they're out there. If a game is more than 11 years old or whatever, it might as well be 80 years old. It's just inaccessible to most of us. There's this artificial scarcity. So that makes it more attractive to me. But I think the further back it was, the more I would want to watch. I feel like I would learn more about players I had forgotten or hadn't seen in a long time or how the pace of baseball was in that time. You know, I'd rather watch a game from the 60s or or the 70s than probably this decade. Okay. I was asked to predict a few things, so I'm going to do that. Let's see. Uh, Somebody asked me to predict a bunch of prospect things. How many career home runs, major league home runs for Josh Young? How many career strikeouts for Jackson Rutledge? Will Will Wilson hit 15 homers in a year? Will Justice Sheffield ever get some bold ink? I will just, uh, all of those, no, zero. If I can guess zero, I will guess zero. And so I'm taking zero across the board on those. That is In four prospects, I I think that is always the safest bet rather than picking some number, even in the best of times. And at this point, I might pick zero for everybody. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But let's see. Matthew asks, hustle doubles, who will have the most in the next decade? That's a tricky thing because hustle doubles are sort of, well, it's a, a, it's a personality trait and it's also a speed thing. And 10 years of predicting speed for the next 10 years is tricky. It's tough. I, I would say that when we did the play index on this, I think that Kevin Kiermeyer was the hustle double king. I consider Javi Baez to be the current hustle double king, but uh, I can't really pick either of those. I don't think both too old. And someone like Fernando Tastis Jr. is a great pick because he is just uh, such an aggressive runner and also so fast. So I might pick him, but you know, in three years he might be hitting 46 homers and bulked up. And so I don't, I don't really know, but I, I'll go with Fernando Tatis Jr. And Matthew asks, what year will Cleveland and Atlanta change their names to less offensive mascots? This is a tough one. I don't think Atlanta will ever change their name. I think that they will remove all of the imagery and then reframe it as simply an adjective and try to try to do that. But if I had to guess, I would guess that this year will be the last year that there is a chop. I, I, I would guess that there will be discouraging language coming from the club about the chop, and uh, that will not stop it this year. But it will make it essentially a non-group activity by 2021. Just a guess. Cleveland, I'm going to... That's a tough one. I, If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I might have said by now. But I will say within 10 years. 
Okay. The chop seems easier to do if the team decides they want to do it. All they have to do is stop playing the music, right? That's true. I mean, fans might do it on their own for a while just to show that they could or something, but I think that would die down pretty That's quickly. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. great point. All right. So are there any words we can say about Noah Syndergaard for the second time in a week now? <laughs> baseball has lost a, a very prominent and exciting pitcher without baseball even being played, which just seems kind of cruel because it's like, hey, there's no baseball. There's no baseball even on the horizon, really. But if baseball were to come back, this guy's not going to be part of it. It's just uh, sort of gratuitous. It's like, you know, just just tell us later. Like, you know, tell us that that he had the surgery like after the fact when we're in a better headspace because baseball is back, you know, like give me a, a day for opening day and then say, oh, by the way, you know, a few <laughs> weeks ago, <laughs> no center card tours UCL. And, and but he's John already surgery. recovering nicely. Right. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's already, already on the comeback trail and, and hey, baseball's back. So <laughs> it's not so bad. I feel like, you know, just like wait to break the news until a better time. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, the, the talk today, a lot of the talk today was about about when they'll come back and, and how the season might get extended to try to get it longer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was, uh, like, obviously there's a sense of overwhelming anxiety over all of life right now. And so this might have just been uh, residual anxiety. But I felt just so nervous reading everybody's plan. I mean, there, there weren't a lot of them, but everybody's plan for how to how to get more games in, how to even ramp up again when spring training comes. Uh, you know, like, I'm just, I'm nervous about, what players are doing on their own for the next couple months. Like you can't even, you know, be in groups of a dozen to have like, you know, oversight over what you're doing right now. And then they're going to ramp up again. They've all, they already got almost to full speed and they had to stop. And now they're going to have to go back to full speed in probably less time. Yeah. And then they're going to have this year that is of a length that nobody is calibrated for and then there might be more double headers i saw somewhere maybe two double headers a week right and then the season might go longer it will play in worse weather it will play when it's colder scott boris wants to play on christmas (laughs) i mean there's like i'm just again like this is not the primary source of my anxiety right now but I just wonder, and then you have a much shorter offseason, of course, next next offseason yeah. before the season comes back, at which point, by the way, who knows, we might have, you know, round two of coronavirus going on. And so I'm just really, I just don't know. I mean, it's it's worrisome and somewhat terrifying to to think about whether all of these bodies that have been trained and conditioned to reach this almost superhuman level, but under intense scrutiny and precise calibration and they still a third of them get hurt every year Mm -hmm. i'm still like i'm really wondering whether we can do this on the fly yeah it is pretty concerning and with Sundergaard, at least like he's a guy who i think people have been waiting for this news for years like when we were talking about it at the ringer when it happened and michael bauman blogged about it he was joking about trying to find and exhume an old draft of a blog post that he had once written when it seemed like this might have happened to Sundergaard because he's had scares before and really since he came up he's thrown so 
hard. He's been one of the hardest throwing, if not the very hardest throwing pitchers in baseball. And there was a period earlier in his career, at least, where it really seemed like he was motivated by that. He wanted to throw as hard as he possibly could. I can remember stories about how they wanted him maybe to ease off a little bit and focus on command. And he just wanted to throw as hard as he possibly could. And in the spring of 2017, he showed up to spring training with you know 17 more pounds of muscle. And he said he wanted to throw harder. And this was coming off a season when his fastball averaged 99.5. He was easily the hardest throwing starter already in baseball. And I get trying to be better, but like, have you heard of Icarus? How hard is too hard? Where whatever you gain in effectiveness, you lose in health. I don't know whether that has changed at all as he has aged, but he continues to throw very hard. And that does seem to be something that's kind of correlated with this injury, although it's obviously not in every case. And There are hard throwers who don't get hurt, and there are soft tossers who, who do get hurt. And Mets fans have seen this happen to everyone, Harvey and DeGrom and Wheeler and Mats. But... With Syndergaard, it's kind of like we've been waiting for a while for for this to happen. And he's actually coming off his most durable season, which is something that I didn't really realize at the time because it it wasn't his most spectacular season. He didn't pitch up to the level on a per-inning basis that he had in previous years. But, you know, he's never thrown 200 innings in 2017. He missed most of the year. And I do hope that he is able to come back and and pitch at a high level again whenever baseball is back because he has been a very exciting pitcher at his peak. And if he does not get back to that level, it'd be very disappointing because like looking back at 2016 and how good his stats were and how young he was. Obviously, there have been even more tragic stories with players and pitchers than Noah Syndergaard's, but it's just another one where I kind of was looking forward to seeing him have another great full year. And obviously, it's a pretty devastating one for the Mets, given the division they're in and the step down from Syndergaard to whoever his replacement would be. So it's a big bummer amid many other bummers. Best of luck to him in his recovery and in actually having surgery at a time when most people are not able to have elective surgeries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and there's there's still some debate, right, about whether it's going to be possible. I like, think... it seems like that's the plan, but I'm reading an article that was posted two hours ago where it's like describes it as a, a somewhat up in the air maybe and that i don't know that, that it hasn't happened yet is what mm-hmm. i'm saying yeah because of medical research in case people are not familiar with this debate most elective surgery has been prohibited in new york because medical resources are needed for obviously more important things yeah i think he's having it in florida or he's supposed to be having it in florida but i think you just have to get a doctor to designate it as essential basically which yeah. You know, it is essential to his profession, obviously, but is perhaps not essential compared to someone whose life is in danger. So between the fact that it's a very wealthy, famous athlete and team, as we've seen with testing, for instance, there seem to be different standards at times, unsurprisingly. And it's an outpatient procedure, and it's also something that tends to be performed by a certain few specialists who maybe are not performing life-saving surgeries if they're not doing Tommy John, but I assume it will happen somewhere at some point. Yeah. All right. Let's answer some emails here. So this is a question from Robert, and it's kind of a two-parter. 
He says, how do you think history will look back on the 2020 world champion, assuming there is one? The 1998-99 San Antonio Spurs won the NBA title during a lockout-shortened season, a fact that seems to frequently be used to deride the legitimacy of their status as champion. However, the 1981 Dodgers seem to be immune to such criticisms. Will we take it easy on the 2020 World Series champs because of the serious nature of the circumstances? I suspect it will depend. Which brings me to question two. What are the most important factors that may determine how much history looks down on the 2020 World Series winner? Is it number of games played, the potential weirdness of an altered playoff format, or how surprising the winner ends up being? For example, a Yankees or Dodgers title would probably be seen as legit, but a D-backs or Rangers one may not. Are there any other factors you think would influence public perception of 2020's eventual, hopefully, champion? I'm trying to figure out why anybody would be upset about the Spurs title. I don't know. I know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't either. I will just say that they had the best record in the NBA. So even if it were an 82-game season, they probably would have made the playoffs pretty safely. (laughs) Uh And then then they beat everybody in the playoffs, which the playoffs weren't affected. Yeah. The postseason was still the postseason. It wasn't shortened. Or maybe it was. I think that the emailer pointed to this, but... I don't think that the champion will be, I mean, the playoffs, like just in exactly the same way, probably the playoffs will still be the playoffs. Now, there are timelines where the playoffs are also affected, but presumably the length of the playoffs, you know, would be the same. And so once you get there, I don't think anybody can say that a uh, your victory over, you know, three opponents in, in, in succession would be any different than the similarly flukish victory over three opponents that every postseason champ goes through. So if as long as people believe that you merited your spot in the postseason, then I think it would be fine. And so, yeah, I mean, I I would guess that there are like 23 teams that could play well enough to make the playoffs, run through the playoffs, and then seem credible, regardless of how long the season is, even if the season is 100 games. Uh, So as long as it's not the Orioles, Tigers, Pirates, Mariners, Royals or Giants, I think they're probably safe. Yeah, I think so too. I don't know. Maybe the Spurs, that was their first championship. And so I I don't know if that's why people at the time thought this was what they needed, but they ended up winning five, right? So I think in retrospect, if it's a team that wins in the shortened season, but then goes on to be dominant for years and years and win more championships, then it's not like you can criticize them on the basis that they only won that one with weird circumstances. So as Robert was saying, if it is a very talented team, a team that has won before or a team that wins after that, then I don't know that anyone would hold it against them. If it's like the shortest season ever, and again, like 81 was pretty short, and still you don't really hear people holding that against the Dodgers, as far as I can tell, even though, as we discussed, there were yeah. teams that were the best teams in their division that year and didn't make the playoffs because of the weird split season. So you'd think that, if anything, that would lead to a lot of people applying their own asterisks to the outcome, and yet you don't really hear that. So. I don't know if it's just a function of time, like decades pass and all the years blend together and you hear, oh, they won the World Series that year and you don't even think that that was a weird outlier year. If it does end up being like, I don't know, a two-month season or something, like if it's just the shortest season ever, 
then maybe it could get to a point where you would kind of question the legitimacy of it, I suppose. Yeah, but even with that, I mean, I think we should just say that that questioning the legitimacy of it, like the real world consequences of that is every once in a while a podcast host says something about it like that there's no no one would care the, the, yeah, the real answer get a to this parade is, and rings yeah, and the everything. real answer to this is that nobody would care at all like <laughs> they would all be just as happy when they won and all the other teams would have wanted it just as much and there will still be a million people well will there be a million people at the parade no there probably <laughs> no. won't be a million people at the parade no but it will still be enjoyed and treated as exactly the same except by content creators in parentheticals and they won't even care that much (laughs) okay well related question then from jesse a patreon supporter how about this for an idea if the season has to be abbreviated play one to two months of baseball and then use the results to seed a tournament every team in mlb is in play best of five or seven games eliminated teams can play in a consolation bracket and we can have a result that ranks all of the teams one through 30 it would be exciting keep all of the teams involved and a way to take advantage of the shortened season. This would especially work if there have to be games in front of no fans. There wouldn't be much loss of revenue and the unique format would likely drive ratings, good or bad idea. And this is something a lot of people have been asking us about and talking about and writing articles about. And I feel like you you should stake your claim to this idea and this topic because you wrote about this and we talked about it here years ago. So your time has come for the everyone makes the playoffs idea yeah i do i mean i do like everybody making the playoffs i don't necessarily see the circumstances of this season as justifying it any more than than i already like the idea i think that unless you can only i mean honestly truly genuinely if they can play 60 games to me that's fine like i don't Mm. need a regular season that's any more legitimate than that it's fine like it can just be weird for a year you know they have like like not all sports are as rigorous about making sure that you've passed some like you know you've answered three riddles from a troll before you can get into the playoffs like a lot of sports are just like come on in let's play and i think that like this season if they play is going to be great and it does i don't think we necessarily need to come up with any Thing super radical to make it great the fact that they're playing will be great uh, but yeah i like every team making the playoffs yeah i i mean usually i don't really but <laughs> i've already s- talked about that though yeah. i did a whole episode about that i know right i can tell people i can link to that if people want to go check it out but there are two ways you could think about it the one is that as you just said like well we'll all just know it's a weird season and yet we'll stick with as close to normality as we can and we'll sort of play it as if it's normal and it'll just be short and we'll understand that but it'll look more or less the same just compressed or you could say well this is going to be weird either way Mm -hmm. so let's just go full weird and let's just say well this season is not the typical season it actually will be an outlier or an asterisk or something we'll just embrace it and we won't try to stick to what we normally do and yeah let's just throw out the typical format and we'll just do brackets or round robin or or whatever a series of short series 
And that'll be the season when we'll all just acknowledge that this was a weird, singular year, and it'll be fun and special and strange. And I don't know which would be better, because on the one hand, that is more disruptive. That makes it seem less legitimate, maybe, because there's no precedent and it won't happen again, hopefully. And so I don't know which would be better for baseball. I I think that would maybe be an appealing thing. But on the other hand, if you said this is just a one-time thing, it's not like we've ever done it, it's not like we ever want to do it again, then maybe that does just from the start sort of send the signal that, eh, this doesn't really count. This won't count, right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. like we'll still say that someone won, but this is, you know, this is a do-over basically. So I don't know which would actually be better. On the one hand, I'd be curious to see a new format that I've never seen before. But on the other hand, it might make me care less because I just feel like this will be a weird speed bump and we'll all just talk about it in the future as remember that one weird year where they just played a tournament and we won't consider it the way that we do most seasons. Yeah, I think in that case, then it really would delegitimize the champion. I think that I would enjoy it. I think I I think I would enjoy it with just as much enjoyment as I enjoy anything. So it would be fun to watch, but yeah, I think that 30 years from now the the champion of that would be uh considered illegitimate, not a real champion, and I uh I do not know if the team would feel the same way as they would if they went through the normal. And I would just like to clarify that my plan to get every team in the postseason is partly designed to give a bigger advantage to the best team in the regular season than currently exists. And this idea that is sketched out would basically put all teams on even footing. And and so there you really truly would have a situation where like the, 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 those seven teams that I named the set, you know, the, the seven that you can't even fathom as contenders would probably have collectively like a one in 10 chance of of winning the world series or close to it so that would be that would be a bit much yeah and also part of your reason for that plan was that the season's really long and there are a lot of meaningless games with no stakes right and this would be a way to artificially add stakes and that wouldn't be as big a problem in this shortened season because there'd be fewer teams they wouldn't have time to get out to giant leads and teams that were totally out of it plus there'd be fewer games we'd all be very eager to have baseball and we'd be aware that there was less baseball and so every game would seem more meaningful it would actually be more meaningful but also it would just seem like it so maybe this is the time when you need that least of all okay so but let's let's do one more though hypothetical part of this so we don't know we don't really have any idea when the season starts we don't know if it's early june We don't know if it's early August. We don't know if it's early October. We just don't know anything right now. And so I said 60 games and I'm fine. You get me 60 games and I'll call it a season and and that would be fine with me. But the contours of this are still being defined. If they couldn't do 60, if like if it turned out that you couldn't play a baseball game until September 15th, then A... Would you want this as opposed to nothing? Would you rather than play a abnormal one-time, one-time only round-robin tournament of all 30 teams that takes place over the course of, you know, eight weeks in late fall and, and early winter? Or would you rather wash the whole season out? And B, is it remotely conceivable that the players could essentially start at the playoffs like physically could they prepare in that way or do you need to have a few weeks that 
are you know slow and and regular and and not the postseason. I think as long as you had a few weeks, just like the second spring training, I think you could start with the playoffs. I don't Uh think you need regular season weeks to get players up to postseason speed. Yeah. But yes, I mean, I keep thinking like, well, some baseball has to be better than no baseball, right? What are the advantages of no baseball? There may be some teams that at a certain point decide that they don't want to play, that it's not in their financial interest to play. Now, on the one hand, a lot of the conversation has been about the negotiations between the union and the owners about what will happen with service time. And it does seem like, based on the latest, that Ken Rosenthal has said that players will get service time, that players who played in 2019 would get the same service time in 2020. They would have to agree to prorated salaries so they'd they'd make less money, but they would get the service time and they would become free agents if they were slated to become free agents unless it was 2020 players, players just making their major league debuts who had not played in 2019, then they wouldn't get service time, it, it seems like, based on the latest reports. But I don't know if there's a a time when I personally would say I'd rather have no baseball, but if baseball comes back in like September or August or something, you have a pretty small window before football begins. And if the NFL is playing a full regular season and baseball is playing this strange little compressed sideshow, I don't know that it would actually capture people's attention and maybe it it really would just seem like this weird quirk and let's just start fresh next year. I I don't know. I asked Meg this question last week and she said, no, like give me baseball. I mean, partly that's because uh, Meg runs a, a baseball site and any baseball content is obviously helpful, which I understand. Maybe if baseball just goes away entirely for a year, like is there value in just reminding people? hey, this is something you like? Like, is there a real cost to a gap year? Like, if you get through a year entirely without baseball, will people say, eh, maybe I didn't actually need this baseball thing. I survived. I found other interests, you know? Like, is there a point at which people just decide to move on? Like, there's some point, obviously, if you took, like, a decade off or something, then new fans wouldn't be created and old fans just uh, wouldn't care anymore. It wouldn't be part of their routine. I don't know whether one year gets you to that, and I I hope not, and I hope we don't find out, but that would be something that's in the back of my mind, just like, hey, let's uh, let's remind people that this is something they like, (laughs) just like even as a teaser for 2021, like, hey, this is the thing that uh, you've been missing and that we will give you next year. Yeah, I would be strongly in favor of even six weeks. Yeah. Just so that you don't have just blank lines across the board in you know in the history books in our memories i think that salvaging something from every year is good and i don't know i think that we would given all that we are you know that we're that we're i mean this we're all going to learn to be satisfied with less from 2020 and Mm -hmm. i think that you know it seems like a shell of a full season, what we're describing. But I think that we're, by that point, going to be really adept at at feeling grateful for, for shells. Yes. Okay. Do you have a stat blast? I do. 
All right. How would you feel about a live rendition of the Step Blessed? I warned uh, Jesse that I might call her in to, to do a live Step Blessed, and she's been home with me for a few weeks now, which is unusual. I might as well take advantage. Oh, thank goodness. I thought I was going to have to do the live rendition. <laughs> no. All right. Let's see. Jesse, you out there? <laughs> have you fallen asleep? All right. I better go. Oh, she's here. I almost fell asleep. <laughs> Do you care to sing us a step list? I'll do my best. Okay. Yay. The floor is yours. Jesse Barber, everyone. I'm cr- Hang on. I want to change my headphones. I Don't do no. it. I want to turn oh, on wait. my good headphones. Sam wants to wait. He's uh, changing his headphones so Hang he on. can I'm getting my good ones out. <laughs> with better quality. Yeah, exactly. Oh, hang on. Hang on, hang on. Okay. Uh, I can't find the cord. <laughs> Here it is. Okay. I'm... I'm hyped. <laughs> Bring it. All right. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> They'll take a data set sorted by something like ERA minus or OPS plus. And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing Ways. Here's today's stat blast. Oh, woo! <laughs> <laughs> oh I am almost weeping. Oh, Sam says he's almost weeping. Bye, Sam. Was, I miss you. <laughs> that was so nice, Jesse. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Jesse. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, I'm gasping. Oh, can you still s- deliver your step less? I can. That was so <laughs> okay. nice. All right. Um, these headphones are too good. I got to change out my headphones. Hang on. All right. There's this kind of genre of fun fact that I'm always a little ambivalent about, which is like the best player to like, like the best player to never make an all-star team or the best player mm-hmm. to, to never, you know, do a good thing. So what I'm doing is it is kind of like that. It's, it's sort of in that. And I'm always a little ambivalent about, about those because they feel a little bit that they're, they're honoring the player, but also uh, pointing out in, you know, a deficiency in that player's life and career. This one was actually recommended to me by Matthew who hang on is this the same Matthew I think this might be the same Matthew who asked me about Cleveland and Atlanta but I'm not sure about that Matthew asks Bill Buckner debuted at 19 and played until he was 40 he ended up with a whopping 15.1 war not a bad career Mm -hmm. but it seems shockingly low for someone who debuted as a teen and played until their 40s, does he have the lowest career war of any player to start in their teens and play until their 40s? And you, I replied, and I cc'd you, so you are maybe already know this, but if you didn't read it, do you have any guess of how many players there are that played in four decades? I remember reading your response, and it was not many. <laughs> no, it was not. It was a lot fewer than I realized. I, I count, uh, if I did the querying right, I count 14 players total pitchers and hitters only 14 and he's correct buckner at 15 war is the lowest and really it's not even all that close uh, rick dempsey is next at 25 which is you know two-thirds more than buckner had and then elmer Vallow and mike morgan are 28 and 29 and then you jump up to 
Rusty Staub, who is triple Buckner. He's at 46, and he's the fifth from the bottom. So we're already triple Buckner. The median is somewhere between Red Ruffing, who had 55 war, and Gary Sheffield, who had 61. So, I mean, you think about Gary Sheffield being the median in a data set. Yeah. That's a pretty high bar. Uh, and then you have uh, Brooks Robinson, Nolan Ryan, Ken Griffey Jr., Burt Blylevin, Joe Morgan, and Alex Rodriguez. And that's the 14. So it is true that Bill Buckner is is the worst. So we know, we've talked about, I've written about, other people have written about how simply being in the majors at a young age is a tremendous predictor of stardom. Right. And so, if, in fact, if you look at players since 1910 who have at least 500 plate appearances total, not in one year, but total through their age 20 season, there are 53 of those players, and 26 of them are in the Hall of Fame, if you include Adrian Beltre and Alex Rodriguez, one of whom is certainly going to make it, and the other who I assume is going to, and certainly obviously deserves to on a, on a performance level. And so basically half are, and then 27 of them are not. So it's 50-50 more or less. All you have to do is play in the majors, 500 plate appearances through age 20, and you're a coin flip to make the Hall of Fame. What I did not realize, and that uh, I don't think I have talked about or written about is that it's about the same for old players that if you look at players who have 500 plate appearances in their entire careers from age 40 on there are 44 of those players which is less common than I realized and of those 44 24 of them are in the hall of fame and 20 of them are not. And that 20 includes Barry Bonds and Pete Rose. So if not for those circumstances, then it'd be 26 to 18. So it is just as predictive that you, I guess, were an all-time great if you play a, a you know, fairly significant amount of time after 40. Not even that significant. 500 plate appearances, one full year. And in fact, uh, if you look at the players who are on both lists, there are only three players who are on both lists, 500 plate appearances through age 20, 500 plate appearances after age 40. Those three are Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Ted Williams. So having both, having the longevity to arrive early and also stay late is predictive of something truly extraordinary. And so by that standard, and I should just note if people are confused, the first thing I did was 19... Uh, you know, teens, 20s, 30s, and 40s. The second thing I did was through age 20. So I said Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Ted Williams, but none of them were on the list of the the 14 because they debuted at age 20. All right. So that if you think about it that way, Bill Buckner really is the exception to this. And, you know, to some degree, it is that he had the, the least extraordinary career of most of these players. But to some degree, it's also that he was barely in this group at all. So he played one game as a 19-year-old, one game, one plate appearance, in fact. He was called up to the Dodgers as a 19-year-old, and it got a mention in the Los Angeles Times when he was called up, but only like the Dodgers also called up six minor leaguers, and then they listed the six. And that was the only time he was mentioned in the LA Times that whole season. So uh, he was not like part of the team in the way that a player is normally part of the team. He batted one time in the ninth inning of a tie game with two on and one out. He pinch hit for the pitcher. He popped out to second base. And that was his whole career as a teenager. So he barely made it into this. And then really, even as a 40-year-old, he barely played 
As a 40-year-old, let's see, he had, in his age 40 season, he had 48 plate appearances. He had a 490 OPS. He was just barely hanging on at that point in his career. And in fact, if you really look at it, Bill Buckner's career makes a lot more sense if you kind of lop it off at a certain point. So he was a very good player in his early 20s and then through his peak, through his late 20s and then into his early 30s. And then, I don't know, then he has his decline. So age 34, he has a 91 OPS plus. Age 35, he has a 106 OPS plus. But let's see, I'm just looking here. 34, negative war. If you maybe would have considered that, you know, usually when you have a 34-year-old with a negative war and he was negative 0.8, there's usually not a lot left over in his career. Maybe you consider his next year could have been his last year. And then... After that, he has negative war, and then the next year, 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 negative war, and then he's out. So if you were to end his career before the run, the final run of, of six negative wars, five negative wars, then it would have ended his career after the 1985 season. Bill Butner never would have been in the 1986 World Series. He would be remembered <laughs> as a batting champ. Mm -hmm. as the recipient of MVP votes four years out of five as a Chicago Cub, as one of the great bat control hitters of his time, as one of the great contact hitters, one of the last truly great contact hitters in Major League Baseball. And he would not be remembered for anything after 1985. And uh, he also would have not been on this data set because he would have been out of the game. So yeah. anyway, Bill Buckner did have a very good career. He also did have a very poor career relative to other players who played as teenagers and also as 40-somethings, but he probably shouldn't have played as a teenager or as a 40-something. And that's the final word on Bill Buckner's career. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that old players playing time would be predictive of how good those guys were or had been. In a way, I, I would think it'd be more predictive because with the young guys, yes, it tells you about their talent, but there's another 20 years to go before they actually have to call it a career and make the Hall of Fame. Yet with an old guy, it still tells you something about the talent that he's still playing at that age, but... There's not the same uncertainty about his future because obviously if he made it to his 40s oh, and yeah. he's still good enough to play, then yeah. he's had a whole full career reasonably healthy. He didn't have a career-ending injury at some point, which a 19-year-old obviously could at any point in the next 20 years. And so I guess on the other hand, you, you maybe you get some guys who hang around just because they're good clubhouse leaders or veteran mentors or something, which you, you don't get a 19-year-old getting promoted for that reason but yeah i would think that uh you know you still if you're good enough to play at 40 something then presumably you were better when you were 30 something and 20 something which means that you must have been really great at those ages so that makes a lot of sense to me yeah i don't know if this is true but anecdotally just for having looked at the lists what was interesting to me is that the players who didn't make the hall of fame who were on the teenage list, who were, you know, played before they were 20. For the most part, their careers, you know, they hit a wall somewhere, they got hurt, they they got bad or whatever, and they don't, other than Buddy Bell was the one player who probably should be in the Hall of Fame or has a good case for the Hall of Fame. If you look at the players in their 40s, who were good in their 40s, who didn't make the Hall of Fame, there's actually a bunch of the, the 
players who had really strong cases on that list. So uh, like uh, Kenny Lofton is on that list and and Greg Nettles is on that list and Uh Rusty Staub is on that list and his Hall of Fame case is not as good now as I recall it being written about maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Maybe as war has developed, his case has maybe suffered for some reason. But I do know that Rusty Staub had a you know a very dignified career, a very good career. And I've read pieces where he is included in in Hall of Fame, you know, candidates. Daryl Evans, I think, is a player who has a Hall of Fame-ish war. He's on the old list. So what I'm saying is that the players who are really good when they're old, I think maybe tend to get remembered as uh, hangers-on, as, as um, what is that mm-hmm. word? Uh, compilers. Yeah, true. All right. Well, on the subject of old players, here's a question from Brian who says, I was thinking about Ken Griffey Jr. and how he never won a World Series. What if players of a certain status, a certain career war or all-star appearances got to choose the team they wanted to be on for their last season? What if that extra roster spot that's coming this season is for just that? What if Ichiro had jumped onto the Dodgers or Astros last season just for one chance at a ring? Maybe this would feel insincere, but they'd still be playing there the full season and working toward that goal, but they chose the team they thought would have the best chance to win. Would also be interesting to see how players made this choice. Well, uh, what percentage of players know that it's their final season, though, when they're embarking on their final season it's got to be a tiny 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 number and particularly if you limit it to players who could declare themselves available to world series contenders and actually get a spot yeah that's the other thing is that you know ken griffey jr in his last year the world series team probably would have said no thanks (laughs) but uh, you know he'd probably actually hurt the world series odds of the team that he was on like in griffey's case he had gone back to the mariners and there was a sentimental attachment there and so if there were a player who had this career war threshold or whatever qualifications for the status we were to apply If it's a player who's been with one team for a very long time and is closely associated with that team, then I would guess that he would just choose to stay there and say, well, these are the cards I've been dealt or I dealt myself and I'm with this team and I don't want to jump ship for one year to try to win a ring with a, a bunch of people I've never played with in a city that's never seen me play. But there are quite a few players who, especially in their latter years, become journeymen and were great at one time, but go from team to team. And in that case, then maybe there'd be no cost to going to this team. And they might say, I want to win that ring. But I mean, if you're a free agent at that point, a lot of players will be free agents at that point. And they oh, can yeah, most choose. Yeah. yeah. So many of them already have this option if if the team makes this option available to them. But, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking of, like, Carlos Beltran going to the Astros now, which uh, obviously is is different in retrospect. But that was kind of a case where it was like, "Eh, here's this old guy and, you know, maybe he can win a championship. And that can be a nice storyline. But would it feel artificial if you were just freed from your contract and it's just, all right, here's the farewell tour, except that you can choose to do the farewell tour wherever you want. It seems like the premise of this question is that the value of the player not counting as a roster spot is is really important here. So like he I think he is acknowledging 
that Ken Griffey Jr. does not belong on a World Series team exactly, uh-huh. and that a true World Series caliber team would not use a roster spot on him, but you get a bonus one to carry your living right. legend. Mm-hmm. And that seems fun to me. Like I think that it would be fun, and I think we would get into the narrative part of that. However... Again, I go back to there being very, very few players. That, like, I, There are not 30 players. There are not even two players most years, I think, who, who fit this description where they are good enough to be a living legend and they know with certainty that they're going to retire. Yeah, and they're not free agents. And, yeah. and they're not free agents. But yeah, oh, and also, oh yeah, the last thing is, and they've never won a World Series. Most right. players yes. have won a World Series if they're 20-year living legend veterans. Uh, there are very few. And so uh, I do, I think I like the idea here of fudging some of the rules so that your Ken Griffey Jr. types can have a real chance of winning a World Series and we can cheer along even if they're not much more than the, you know, spiritual uplift part of the team. But I don't know that this is the most efficient way to do it. So I don't know how the best way to do it is, but I would I would have been perfectly happy to see Ken Griffey Jr. Would I have been? Would I have been perfectly happy? Also, the thing is, too, you have to decide whether you want to see that player in a strange uniform in some right, cases. Yeah. In some cases, sure. I've seen that player in a bunch of uniforms. In a lot of cases, though, especially in the players who we would have this emotion, like, would you have wanted to see Adrian Beltre? Maybe we don't care. We've already seen him in four uniforms. But would you have wanted to see Adrian Beltre suddenly in a fifth? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Yeah, Because there'd be some bitterness with a lot of these guys if they did choose and and that's why part of the question was would it would be interesting to see what the players would decide to do because most players who have attained living legend status haven't played for that many teams probably there are some obviously who bounce around but if you're really good then you're probably more likely to have been signed to a long-term contract at some point and built up a real rapport with that city and are associated with that city and you know you probably haven't played for more than a couple teams and so yeah like even when Beltran went to the Astros to try to win a World Series like even he had a history with the Astros a brief one but he was on that 2004 team and he had that unbelievable playoff run with them and so there was still something there so with a lot of guys like you know what I want like I'm trying to think of someone in recent years like the other thing is that there are some players who are on perfectly legitimate World Series contenders to begin with, right? So, like, uh, you know, Derek Jeter in his final season, like, he was uh, on the Yankees. I guess at that point, the Yankees weren't actually that good. But but Jeter also doesn't qualify for this because he's already because got Because he rings. won a million, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, right. So there aren't that many guys. You know, in... I, I, think, I think I hate this idea, actually. <laughs> I think it's fine that it's hard. To win a World Series, and some people—if you yeah. make it hard, some people aren't going to get it, and that's that's fine. That's the cost. That's the cost of making it satisfying. Yeah, I'm trying to think if it would be less special if you could pick the best team, because like that—that's part of the reason why it is so special when it happens is that you can't pick, and you you do just have to guess or you know take what you're dealt in terms of what team signed you or drafted you or traded for you or or whatever and some players don't get lucky and other players do 
So I don't know if you could decide before the season, if you could just look at the projections and say, well, this these are the front runners. I'm going to go join them. Won't people accuse you of like, you know, jumping on the bandwagon or, or whatever? And And if you are turning your back on a city that has a relationship with you, then I could see why they would feel snubbed because it's it's not going because you're unwanted or because you're underpaid or something. It's just like, well, I want to go win with a, a bunch of other people and get myself a ring. And maybe it just wouldn't be as special if you don't have a history there. So there are certain circumstances where this would work out. Like with Ichiro, I guess, if, you know, when he was with the Marlins or whatever, it's like, you know, he could go somewhere else and, and we'd all be happy about it. But, you know, he went back to the Mariners just like Griffey did because there is that urge to return to a place that cares about you and that you care about. So maybe that's more important. You know who jumped to a a World Series contending team late in his career after uh, a a very long and accomplished career that didn't include a World Series ring? Who? Bill Buckner. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Look how that worked out. All right, last one. This is from Andrew. He says uh, he is a Patreon supporter. He says, if teams are concerned about injuries due to overuse but also want to get games in, why not play seven inning games at the start of the season until players are ready? So he's saying that the baseball season could come back and instead of having, you know, a four week spring training, maybe they just have a two week spring training or something, but they play some seven inning games so that pitchers don't have to go as deep into games. It's also been brought up that if they do go to this two double headers a week idea, then maybe the double headers could be seven innings a piece, which is something that has happened in the minor leagues. So this is a way to get more games in. But it's also another thing that would be weird about this baseball season. Well, you you know, by the way, Bill Buckner got traded uh, to the Red Sox. So uh-huh. uh, never mind. It's a cheap shot anyway. <laughs> there are people. So you have to decide, I think, whether you want to see seven inning games for all games before you decide what you feel about this. Because uh, there are people who want to see seven inning games for all games. Right. Not a lot, but there are some. It's growing. And as games continue to get longer and as, as attention spans continue to get shorter and as the sort of kind of basic logic of seven inning games instead of nine inning games becomes more popular among people, I would guess that in 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years, it is going to be a hot topic of debate. Should we switch to seven? And if you switch some games in this current coming season, to seven, what you are doing is uh, accelerating that timeline by by possibly decades. If, yeah. if if there are seven inning games this summer, then I guarantee you, in ten years, we are going to have seven inning games in Major League Baseball, which might be great. And I'm not knocking it, but you have to decide whether you want what's on the end of that slippery slope because right. I think there's no doubt that it is a slippery slope from in- introducing it in Major League Baseball to ultimately having it in a standard form in in the season. Maybe not for all games, but standard form in the season. Right. That's something people are talking about in a lot of areas of life during this pandemic is, you know, like everyone starts working from home and suddenly you realize that, oh, okay, the business can function potentially or I can function working from home. And then do you start to see more lenient policies around coming into the office in the future, even when it's safe to do so? So there are all kinds of societal changes that could happen just because 
we've demonstrated that it's possible now. And the same thing could happen in baseball. And personally, I, I don't know. I'm kind of against the seven inning game as like, well, we're we're throwing in the towel on shortening games. That's why we're doing this. We we want games to be a certain length, and we've decided that we can't get nine inning games down to that length anymore, even though they used to be that length. And so we're just going to lop off a couple innings, and then maybe the seven inning games will start getting longer again, and then we'll have this conversation again about six inning games, you know, in thirty years or something. So I I don't like it as that as just like a retreat as giving up because I feel. Like they could make the game shorter if they really were serious about it. And I know that, you know, guys throw harder now and maybe they need more recovery time between pitches and all that. But I think if you really did strictly police that, you could get games down to a a shorter length because uh, they used to play games, (laughs) you know, a lot less time. So I do think it's possible. And I don't like it as that, as just, all right, like, you know, we give up. This is the last resort. We need shorter games. So we're just going to give you less baseball, less action. I don't like it for that reason. But if you do decide that there's just too much baseball, period, which is a valid reason. And this is a, a similar conversation because people talk about, do we need 162 games? And so now maybe this season you have fewer games for coronavirus related reasons. Maybe that makes people more willing to accept a shorter season in the future. I don't know. So on the one hand, I like getting more games in, but really, if you're not getting much more baseball in, it's the same number of innings and it's the the same degree of like determining who was actually the best team and the best players, then I I think there'd be resistance to it based on the fact that the season is already wacky as -hmm. it is. So let's not change one other thing that has been part of baseball since the very beginning. Like there's a lot of, you know, romance and tradition associated with nine innings and the nines and the threes and the outs and the number of batters in the lineup and all of that symmetry that maybe we wouldn't really miss if it were gone. But I think people are quite attached to it now. So I don't know that it's worth it just to play some more games in this one weird season. You know what they should do is they should, instead of playing seven-inning doubleheaders, they should play three-inning tripleheaders, and then you really keep the symmetry going. Every Uh, game is three games of three innings each. Yeah, well, we just got an email from someone else who asked, Max said, if uh, you could have doubleheaders with two seven-inning games, let's say that instead of playing two seven-inning games, the team can agree to play one 14-inning game with the winner receiving two wins and the loser receiving two losses. So same game, just twice as long, and it counts double in both directions. Okay. I was just kidding about my thing, though. (laughs) Max was not. No. He's serious. Yeah. I don't know. Is there an advantage to that? Uh, It doesn't save any time. It saves some time between games, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. And you can only have one crowd although this year we might not have crowds period so that doesn't really matter if it's not a double entry double header there's no one there all right weird year okay okay all right that will do it for today thanks for listening and thanks to jesse and her mandolin for the musical accompaniment i should mention that paul moorhead a listener in our facebook group has started a stat blast cover competition he's offering some small cash prizes to the winners but i think it's really about the bragging rights or really just about the fun of it and a few people have already submitted really great stat blast song covers 
I will probably play them at some point on the show. So I will link to that thread in the Facebook group if you want to get in on this. Some people have more time on their hands these days. They're home. So if you want to record your own cover of the Stat Blast song, I like hearing them and Jesse loves hearing them. So thanks to Paul for organizing that. You know, I meant to mention when we were bantering the most recent Mike Trout golf highlight. Of course, everyone saw the drive he made during spring training when he just absolutely crushed a ball and it kind of went viral and everyone was impressed that Mike Trout had hit a ball that far. And just recently, there was another clip where he was working on his short game and he chipped a golf ball into a solo cup from his balcony in the second floor of his house, I assume. And both of these shots have been really impressive. But I think in part they've impressed me because I wasn't really aware of Mike Trout's golf prowess. Like, clearly he is a a great golfer. It's not just that he happened to pick up a club for the first time and crushed a ball or chipped a ball. He plays golf all the time, and it's the sport that he takes second most seriously. I don't know why it is that I hadn't really paid close attention to this, because, of course, we overanalyze everything Mike Trout does or hypothetically could do. And everyone knows that he really likes the weather, and we've talked about how he hunts and fishes but I hadn't really followed his golf game. I found an article from 2013 that talks about his golfing, and at the time he said that he was probably like a 7 or 8, maybe a 9 handicap. If I don't play every day, then I'm a little shaky. I found a more recent article from 2017 that says he's more like a 6 or 7 handicap. He also had a hole-in-one in March of 2017, so he's been doing it since high school. He plays all the time. He's very good. He wants to play Augusta National someday, as I guess many golfers do. He's played around with Phil Mickelson at some point, so it's not like he just picked up a club for the first time and was a natural, but, you know, he's obviously super athletic and he can dunk a basketball, and if baseball goes away, maybe he can just join the PGA Tour. Also, while I was reading about his golf game, I found out that Mike Trout's childhood nickname was Headquarters because he had a big head. But he says no one calls him that anymore because they know better. Still has a big head, though. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Eduardo Zybert, Jeff Silver, Fraser May, Arthur, and Adam Maz. I know times are tough financially for a lot of people, so if you are still finding room in your budget for Effectively Wild, we are very grateful and appreciate it. You can join our aforementioned Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please help replenish our mailbag. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Sam and Meg via email at podcast.fangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. The new expanded paperback edition of my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players, is still on track to come out on April 7th. As far as I know, you may or may not be able to walk into a bookstore and buy it. That seems unlikely, but you can order it online, maybe order it from a local bookseller and pick it up or have it delivered. It has a lengthy new afterword that you might be interested in, and maybe you have some time to read. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with one more episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. There are mountains between us. There is time between us. Wink, there's something between us. Something short and sweet.